Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, current archaeological research investigating the DeLuna expedition of 1559. It's really pretty unprecedented to have two different vessels, and possibly uh, as many as four or five, uh, in the bay from, um, from a single fleet. We'll hear from the family who brought Eastern Airlines and the Brooklyn Dodgers to Florida. I think that was more my mother's idea than my dad's. And we'll meet Seminole leader Betty Mae Jumper. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The 1,500 men, women, and children who accompanied Don Tristan de Luna on his quest to establish the first European settlement in North America would be familiar with this music by Diego Ortiz. De Luna's fleet sailed into Pensacola Bay 450 years ago in the summer of 1559. The story of how this colonization effort was thwarted by a hurricane is detailed in the John Appleyard historical novel De Luna, founder of North America's first colony, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. Gregory Cook is a faculty member at the University of West Florida. It was one of the uh, several expeditions in the 16th century. Spain had a very great interest in establishing a presence in, in southeastern United States, in La Florida, as they would call it. Uh, and Luna's was the attempt uh, to, to uh, establish a settlement in the Gulf and then travel overland to Santa Elena, where they wanted to have also an Atlantic settlement as well. Cook was part of a panel at the 27th annual Gulf South History and Humanities Conference called Current Research on the Luna Fleet, Historical Archaeological Investigations of the Doomed 1559 Colonization Attempt. Much of the current research on the DeLuna expedition focuses on a ship called the Emanuel Point One, discovered in 1992 in Pensacola Bay. That was the first indication that these ships were there and that they were findable. Um, uh, the, looking for Luna's settlements or ships of that voyage is sort of what I've called the holy grail of northwestern Florida archaeology. So the state of Florida initially found the site and then they worked with University of West Florida to investigate it over the years. Gregory Cook's paper, Investigating Luna's Ships, the Discovery and Excavation of Two Vessels from the 1559 Fleet, discusses the Emanuel Point 1 and the Emanuel Point 2, which has been the subject of archaeological field studies for the past several summers. 
both ships are very well preserved. Uh, they're both buried to various degrees, um, and just the, the, a variety of items have been found on both of them, um, from armaments to supplies, ceramics, uh, faunal remains, animal remains, uh, plant remains, um, just a variety of variety of things, really. Cook says that the items recovered from these two ships from Tristan de Luna's fleet will provide research opportunities for years to come. Sure, we're actively working on Emmanuel Point 2 now. Uh, we were diving on it just last week, and we're also continually surveying and searching for other vessels in the fleet because it's really pretty unprecedented to have two different vessels and possibly uh, as many as four or five uh, in the bay from, um, from a single fleet. John Bratton is chair of the Anthropology Department at the University of West Florida. His paper presentation at the Gulf South History and Humanities Conference focused on the arms and armor found on the two DeLuna ships currently being excavated. For the first shipwreck, we found a, a number, 11, if I remember correctly, stone cannonballs, and they're about the size of a grapefruit, and so kind of early cannon technology before they really switched to uh, standard die shot and things like that. But we found smaller ones for what they called swivel guns or versos, as they would have called them. We found... Um, the tips to arrows that would have been shot from crossbows and we were excited because these were made out of copper and we actually uh, found the source for that copper in Mexico and we tie this connection in between Europe, Spain with Mexico to Pensacola that goes all along then with uh, the Luna expedition. While Bratton is excited about the discoveries made so far on the Emanuel Point 1 and 2 ships, he'd like to uncover some other important items. He admits that when it comes to uncovering more arms and armor, the possibility is low. Well, one of the things that we'd like to find would be some cannons, and uh, particularly one of the bronze guns. We have documents that tell us that these guns were carried on board the ships, but uh, the ships ran aground, basically the hurricane threw them on sandbars in a depth, to the present day depth of about 12 feet. So to the Spanish, they would have been accessible after the storm, and these would have been considered very valuable items. So fortunately for them, I guess, they salvaged all of these things. And so, but yet there's a, enough things that they were not able to get to that gives us a, a pretty good picture, though, of what type of weapons that they did bring to protect these potential colonists. Bratton explains how his team of archaeologists know what to look for when excavating to Luna's ships. Archaeology is a is a discipline that incorporates many other disciplines to help us with this and so of course there's historians involved and we actually found grant money to send uh, people to Spain to look in the doc the collections there it's called the Archivo General of the Indies and all these documents exist they're still preserved today they're wrapped up in leather bundles and then you'll find a pack of these documents and fortunately, the Spanish were notorious for the paperwork and the bookkeeping that went into these projects. And so all these intricate details are recorded about all the supplies that were purchased for it and paying the people to carry them. So we have that record, but yet the archaeological record augments that because things that were left out of the documents, then we can actually find in the field. And so it's, it's a matter of taking the entire work, the historical work, and then we do scientific analyses as well. We send plant materials off to be identified, to identify what they were eating and bones. And uh, it, it just makes it fun then to bring all this together to get the real entire picture of what happened in 1559. Elizabeth Murphy is working on her master's degree in historical archaeology at the University of West Florida. This past summer, she was a graduate student supervisor gaining hands-on experience in Pensacola Bay. Yeah, it was great. Um, we worked all summer long on the Emanuel Point 2 shipwreck and then a couple of other shipwrecks that are out in Pensacola Bay. Um, and we also worked on the lab work and survey for other shipwrecks. 
Murphy describes a typical day in the life of an underwater archaeologist. We got to work at 6:30 in the morning, and we were running a field school, so we had students that came along too. And they usually showed up between 6:30 and 7, even though they really didn't need to be there until later. So they were really excited to go too, which was great for us. Um, and we usually got our boats up and running. Um, we had to get them all checked out every morning, make sure everything was going right, and then uh, we'd get down to the dock usually around eight. And we would shuttle everyone out to the barge, which is、um, just off of Three Mile Bridge. And we usually worked out there、um, until like 1:30 ish,、um, unless we got chased away by a storm, which tend to come across、uh, the bay. And、um, We worked in groups of two students,、uh, and usually a supervisor would be with them, and they learned how to dredge. They learned how to keep proper provenance of artifacts and、um, how to map, and really getting used to diving and doing real academic work in zero visibility. Elizabeth Murphy's paper, titled "The Travels of Don Tristan de Luna and His Men to and from Ochoos," focuses on a particular portion of the de Luna papers. The part that I used for my paper、uh, was the basically the court documents、um, that、uh, New Spain called into question a couple of the people from the actual Luna expedition to tell them、um, what happened, basically what went wrong. By that point, they already knew that the expedition had failed,、um, but. Luna was sort of scarce, and they wanted to make sure that they got the real story from a couple of different people and had it on record. Basically, the same way our legal records work now. If we if we have a, a lawsuit or something like that, we have to get as many、um, accounts of what happened as possible. While doing her research, Murphy came across descriptions of events also used by John Appleyard in his historical novel *De Luna*, founder of North America's first colony. Oh, really? The most interesting part was the the fourth account, was the the Davia Padilla account.、Um, a lot of times, in the past, historians have、uh, discounted a lot of the Padilla account because、um, it's they consider it largely exaggerated.、Um, And that's mostly because the two documents were formed for completely different reasons. One was legal documentation; the other one was、um, basically a narrative of the whole thing. And they were、uh, explained a lot more details about what happened, where, like different events.、Um, but really, what I found through my research is that the the soldiers and the、um, religious accounts they all match up on how many people went where and when and why. So all of those really you can count as fact, and everything else. Is sort of extra on top of that, but the most interesting thing really was the the extensive account of like different events that happened.、Um, there was a particular thing that they called a a miracle, where they were、uh, they had mass、um, in a place, and a caterpillar fell off a tree and into the chalice,、um, and、uh, because nobody died after drinking the wine. Uh, that they consider that a miracle, so it's kind of interesting to see how, over a period of time, the term miracle has sort of、uh, become harder to、uh, reach. <laughs> Sarah Linden is also working on her master's degree in historical archaeology. She participated in the Emanuel Point Field School in 2007 and was a graduate student supervisor in 2009 when she made an exciting discovery. My favorite thing I found、um, was. About a little wooden carving, maybe I think it was like two or three inches long, and I was actually looking to check to make sure that our undergraduate students were doing the right thing. And I just reached down to kind of feel where they were at in the unit, and I found something that felt kind of spongy. And I picked it up, and it was about this long, and it looks like a 
a torch almost that would have been held hand held as like a little wooden figurine. We don't really know yet, but it's what it looks like. But that was probably my favorite thing I've ever found. Linden's study on the materials of conquest presented at the Gulf South History and Humanities Conference focuses on archaeological excavations done on land. They're mostly around the Kusawati, the Kusa, and the Etowah Rivers in northwest Georgia. And then there's been some other places. Um, there's a site called the Berry Site in southeastern Tennessee, which um, has just produced some European artifacts that date to the 16th century. Linden is proposing that artifacts found in several southern states can be identified as having come from the De Luna expedition, or perhaps those of Hernando de Soto or Juan Pardo, by comparing the unattributed items to known samples. There was a site found in Tallahassee that's been um, positively identified to be uh, where Hernando de Soto encamped for about five months in 1539 during that winter. Um, there's been a lot of metal artifacts found on that site. There's also the shipwrecks here that are known to be from Luna. Um, therefore, I would like to figure out a way to chemically characterize the two known assemblages and then compare those results to the artifacts found in Georgia and Tennessee to see if I could figure out a connection between the two. So the historical research continues on the DeLuna expedition, the first attempted European colony in Florida. The historical novel, DeLuna, founder of North America's first colony, is available at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, order books about Florida history and culture, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. All my bags are to go I'm standing here outside your door I hate to wake you up to say goodbye but the dawn is breaking it's early morn taxi's waiting he's blowing his horn already I'm so lonesome I could cry so kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you wait for me Hold me 
prominent Indian River County family was the first to bring both Eastern Airlines and the Brooklyn Dodgers to Florida, Janie Gould has more. The Holman name is practically synonymous with Vero Beach. Just think Holman Stadium. The late Bud Holman brought aviation and baseball to Vero. He had worked for General Motors in Detroit and in Cuba when he got a chance to open a Cadillac dealership in Vero. That was in 1925. In Detroit, he had met a famed veteran of World War I, the flying ace who helped start Eastern Airlines. Bump Holman, who runs Sun Aviation at the airport, is Bud's son. Eddie Rickenbacker, after World War I, came back to Detroit and was involved with the Rickenbacker automobile. Was it a car that lasted a while, the Rickenbacker? I don't think so. I never remember ever seeing one, but I've seen pictures of them. He was more famous for things that flew. Definitely. Now, your father was here. How did he get Eastern Airlines to come here? Well, I'm not exactly sure how he did that. He knew all these guys, and they liked to come here and hunt and fish with him. Eastern they, pilots and executives. Yeah, and executives. And they said, well, you know, we need to have a fuel stop somewhere. And he said, well, I'll put you in a fuel stop. They put three grass runways in, and Eastern operated on the grass runway. My dad was very good friends with General Hap Arnold, who was head of the Air Force of the U.S. Army Air Corps back in those days. They were out hunting and fishing, and the general said, I think he was a colonel back then. Anyway, he was telling about they're going to take these B-18 bombers and fly around the world to show the world about our Army Air Force and how powerful we were and everything. My dad said, well, why don't you leave from here on your around-the-world trip? And he said, oh, we've got to have paved runways. And my dad said, yeah, I know. Why don't you pave some runways? So they did. And when the war started, everybody assumed that this was going to be an Army air base. Boy, all of a sudden, the Navy flew into town one night, and, man, the next day, they had it. <laughs> How did that happen? Do you know? I don't know. They just did it. So Hap Arnold was no longer here. No. All of this property belonged to the Navy during the war. I think it's one of those deals. I think they take uh, title for a dollar a year. They took what they needed yeah. or what they wanted. Yeah. But Eastern was allowed to fly in and out. How did that happen? Well, I don't think my dad just talked to Navy into letting them do it, you know, and talked Eastern into continuing coming here. I guess one hand worse the other. They built the hangar here in early 1930. When the war started, it was right in the way of the Navy, so they moved that whole hangar. Then after the war, he moved it back over here. So he took it apart twice? Yeah. What do you remember about the uh, Navy years? Well, I remember when they first started here, they were a dive bomber base, and it was very dangerous. They had terrible airplanes. They lost eight of them in the city limits one night. Their main target was out where our ranch is at Blue Cypress Lake. They had the target right in the middle of the lake, so they all the time fishing them out of there. Later on, they changed over to a night fighter base. They had pretty experienced pilots, so we didn't have near as many accidents. We lived two, three blocks south of the airport. We could hear those engines running out there all night. There was a while one of them taxi up on another. You'd hear them go, chop, 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 to chop the tail off of them. Navy SEALs training in Fort Pierce sometimes conducted mock raids of Vero's Naval Air Station. They had to get from Vero's Beach to the base without being detected. Bud Holman was one of the only civilians allowed to enter the air base without having his car searched. He'd always go by the captain's house and have coffee with him. So he's coming through McGage Park and he sees two of those Navy SEALs out there, you know, all in camouflage and their guns and everything. And so he stopped and waved them over and said, hey, you want to catch the commanding officer? And he put him in a truck and he drove out there the base and drove into the captain's garage. <laughs> he went in and said I was having coffee with the captain. All of a sudden, these two guys walked in and they had him. After the war, some of the Navy's old buildings became home to the Brooklyn Dodgers for spring training. I think that was more my mother's idea than my dad's. My mother said, you know, we ought to get somebody to use those buildings. I don't know what gave her the idea. She said, how about a baseball team? Tell me.
Bob Holman was the Dodgers pilot for many years. The Heritage Center recently honored the Holmans as an outstanding pioneer family. Cheney Gould from WQCS prepared that report. I'm a Now the time has come to leave you One more time Let me kiss you Then close your eyes I'll be on my way Dream about the days to come When I won't have to leave alone About the time I won't have to say As one of the last Native American tribes to assimilate into American society, Florida's Seminole Indians managed to hold on to their customs and rituals until well into the 20th century. Bill Dudley has this look at one of the most influential members of the Seminole tribe. As they listened to her sing a song in the language of the Seminole Indians, few of the school children gathered here realized the role played by Betty Mae Jumper in the evolution of today's Seminole tribe. But now Jumper is telling her story in the book A Seminole Legend, the Life of Betty Mae Tiger Jumper, co-authored by anthropologist Patsy West. Her story is very interesting because when she was young, five years old, the Seminole medicine men in the area around Indiantown, Florida, tried to put Betty and her brother to death because they were the first children who were born of a white father. They were actually the first children that were allowed to live, and they were only allowed to live because her family had turned Christian in 1920. That made her quite different from the rest of the people within the tribe, and she was always treated that way and uh, as a result became a very strong person and very determined in her life. Later, Betty May and her family moved to the newly created reservation in what is now Hollywood, Florida. It was a time when most Native Americans still lived under the rule of white Indian agents. It was unusual for any Seminole to be formally educated as we know it. The boys had what they call boy school that they could go to, where they learned what it was to be a Seminole. They fasted and did things like that. But the women didn't really have a comparable schooling. They learned sort of on the job at home. Yeah, we didn't have no TV or radio or anything like that. And what we listened to was the older people sit around a fire, and we would porch oranges or we would put sweet potatoes under the charcoal. And... We listen to them and eat while they tell us stories on cold winter nights. 
Then when we go to bed, our grandmothers or somebody lay next uh, mosquito net. We had mosquito net that we slip under these chickies, and she would tell us all these things. But a visit to relatives in Oklahoma filled the young woman with a desire to read and write. There were no educated Seminoles at that time. Betty was the first formally educated. She actually wanted to learn to read and came home and sort of agitated her grandmother, who didn't want her to at all, thought her place was just to stay home and cook and clean and marry, that kind of thing. In the late 1930s, supported by local organizations led by lifelong friends like Ivy Stranahan, the 14-year-old Betty was sent to North Carolina to an Indian school. A few years later, she returned to Oklahoma to study nursing. Over the next decade, she would provide the only medical care for the widely scattered groups of Indians in South Florida. She kept on doctoring and, and helping people in every way she could for most of her life. Working as nurse, writer, and translator through the 1950s, Betty May had her finger on the pulse of Seminole politics. Her involvement came at a critical juncture for the tribe as the U.S. government sought to mainline the Seminoles or cut them loose from federal supervision to organize their own government. But the Seminoles didn't have electricity. Only a bare handful had been to school. They had never lived in a regular house with windows and floors. They lived in chiquis. They hunted still. They did other jobs like parking lot attendants or alligator wrestlers. The women made clothes and dolls and gifts, but they were by no means entrepreneurs. And um, to mainstream them would have been ridiculous. Uh, they weren't ready for that. But after several years of preparation, the tribe did become an independent entity in 1957. From the beginning, Betty Mae Jumper was recognized as a leader in tribal politics. Betty had held public office not because she was trying to put herself forward, but because she knew so much about the people and had been educated, she felt it was her duty to take care of business. And she was elected the only tribal chairwoman to date in 1967 and held that position for her for four years until 1972. During her term of office, Jumper helped raise health and living standards for the Florida tribe, as well as form coalitions with other American Indian groups. Since that time, she went back to health care work for a while, and then in 1979, James Billy, the new tribal chairman at that time, asked her to promote the Seminole tribe by going out to organizations and talking about the tribe and telling folk tales and she has done that then to date. Uh, she also became the head of Seminole Communications Department, which is a position she still holds. I'm gonna tell you another story about uh, a wolf and a turtle. You know what the turtle says? Sometimes they go across the road. Now in her late 70s, Betty May Tiger Jumper remains active in tribal affairs. One of the things that strikes me about Betty is when you really believe in something, you stick with it. And when you believe in something like she believes in her people, even though they often treated her poorly, you just do it. You know, you do it without wanting any return. You just do it because you feel like it's necessary and you feel better for it. I think she's a very determined individual who has certainly put her life out for the Seminole people. Co-author Patsy West. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
Join us again next week, and in the meantime, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.